Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And Jenna, I would say that perhaps the awareness about mental health issues has grown exponentially during uh, COVID-19 and quarantine. There's a new Mental Health America study out that says 68% of Americans admit to struggling with their mental health right now. Um, the biggest reasons are fear of contracting the virus, um, the difficulties over financial stress and anxiety, and also, of course, just the tedium of quarantine and how difficult it is to be with the same people or alone day after day after day. Does that number surprise you at all? It does. I want to know who the 32% are that say they're not struggling. <laughs> I, have, I have not met them. <laughs> that is exactly right. Like, you know what, this is, we always say on this show that we're all in the soup together. Like, yep. who are people that are not in the soup this time, right? I, I certainly am in that soup. And, you know, of course, catch me on any given day and I might be doing better or worse. But I think if you take in general, um, I certainly have never lived through a period where we have had so many challenges to our kind of the way we function psychologically. So it's really hard for me to imagine somebody saying, nope, I'm doing just as good as I was doing a year and a half ago. I know, I know. I, I think maybe they are, are the kind of people who avoid any kind of self-exploration to tell you the truth, you know, yeah. just, it's always okay, it's always okay, it's always okay, until they're having a massive cardiac arrest <laughs> because they've pushed down every kind of emotion they've ever had. Well, today we want to talk about the number of people that are accessing care, which I love seeing the figures are going up, the number of people who are actually trying to get uh, counselors is going up. But I think it's important to lay the groundwork for how you do find care and find the right kind of practitioner. So guide us. How would you like to begin? So I think one of the questions that I get most frequently are like, what are all these different providers? You know, all of these different letters after people's names. And it's really hard to know, is there a difference between these or what are, what's the difference? Who should I seek out for what problems? So maybe that's something for us to sort of talk about and help the audience understand a bit. Yeah, let's go from kind of the lowest intervention of care all the way up to the highest. Sure, yeah. So lowest intervention of care are things like peer support groups. You can find these on meetup groups. Many advocacy groups have peer support groups. Um, hospitals often have peer support groups. And these are groups, they're not led by a mental health professional but they have other people with shared life experience and you can come together and find support and sort of mutual camaraderie and in those contexts. And those can be incredibly helpful for people. Then you have sort of the option of uh, group therapy and group therapy is where um, you have a licensed trained mental health professional or often two leading a group of people. So it tends to be a little bit more structured and you have somebody who's sort of in charge of managing the group. And then of course you have individual psychotherapy or couples therapy or family therapy, any of those. And you know the providers of those people tend to be either licensed clinical social workers, so you might see the letters LCSW after their name, um, licensed professional counselors, LPC, licensed marriage and family therapist, LMFT, or licensed clinical psychologists. 
And licensed clinical psychologists are either a PhD after their name or PSYD, PsyD after their name. And the key with all of these folks is that they are licensed. And I would say the one thing when I'm talking with people is it's not that there aren't really great people out there who have incredible wisdom who may not be licensed, but the problem is you have no recourse if you find somebody who is abusing their power or is acting unethically. And that's why being seeing a licensed person is so important. It's also so important just because the techniques that they use um, when they're licensed are evidence-based. And uh, if, they're, if they're not evidence-based, then it, it might be likely that you're wasting a lot of times with therapies and, and uh, attempts at different kind of um, reconciling with your problems that aren't really grounded in science. Yeah, I would say that there are varying degrees of how much even licensed people emphasize science-based or evidence-based practices. So if that is something that is important to you, if you know that you want to see somebody whose interventions are based on what the science says is going to be effective, and of course science is just one way of knowing in the world, but you would need to see somebody who, when you read their bio or when you talk with them, they say things like, I practice evidence-based care or I practice science-based care. So those are the things to be looking for. I left out one group of folks who also provide therapy, and those are psychiatrists. So those um, have MD or DO after their name. But I left those groups out because typically psychiatrists are primarily prescribing medication and they don't have nearly as much training typically in providing psychotherapy. So I was focusing on the folks who primarily have training in doing psychotherapy. And now if we can talk about uh, a person starts to feel anxious, they're not sleeping well, they're having difficulty with their diet, they're having stress in their relationships, um, talk us through where do you begin? Do you go on your insurance card? Do you talk to a friend? That's a really great question. So the insurance question is something that's really confusing to people. And there are three different ways that you can pay for mental health care. So you can use your insurance with an in-network provider. And that means the place you would start probably is go to your insurance panel, all the insurance carriers, Blue Cross, Aetna, all of those will have lists of people who are in-network. And if you see those people, you're seeing them for a reduced fee and um, the provider is contracted with the insurance panel. Second way is you can use your insurance and you can see an out-of-network provider. That still means you would have a copay. It's probably slightly higher than your in-network um, providers are, but those providers are not beholden to your insurance company. And it also means there's probably um, less uh, transfer of your private mental health information to your insurance provider if you see an out-of-network provider. And of course, the last way is you can pay out of pocket. And if you pay out of pocket, of course, you can just pay the fee or many providers will provide a sliding scale if you don't have insurance or can't use your insurance. And we talked about one of the beneficial ways of um, providing your own uh, payment is that mm -hmm. 
then it's actually not reported. You actually do have the ability of controlling the information that's just been shared. And so if it is possible, haven't you said before that it is important that people try to maintain as much privacy as they can with their mental health information? That's my bias. Um, so my bias is I don't know who gets this information once it leaves my office. And so I, I watch it like a hawk. Now, there's another perspective, which is let's just share all of this information so that all the providers who are working with you have all the same information. That's a, that's a valid perspective. It's not the one that I happen to work from. So you would just want to talk with your provider about, hey, are you putting down a diagnosis for me? That's a main one you want to ask. If so, what is that diagnosis? Who's getting access to that diagnosis? All licensed providers will have to take notes of your session, so there will be a record. But things like diagnosis and how that information is shared will vary greatly. Let's talk about how to uh, determine if something is working, if your sessions are working, and when to call it quits if it's not. <laughs> one of the, I mean, it, it, this sounds this sounds sort of like a cop-out answer, but one of the things I'll tell my clients is sort of like, you're probably going to know if it's helpful, if it's working or not. <laughs> the problem is people just don't sort of trust their own experience because we get into these situations where, and I've been in it, where we have the quote-unquote expert, you know, doctor so-and-so, and we feel like, oh, maybe I'm doing it wrong or maybe my expectations are too high. So what I say in my very first session with clients is the most important thing is that you feel like this is a good match between you and your therapist. You really have to trust that. But then the other piece is I encourage people, the very first contact they have with a therapist or a counselor they might see on the phone usually, I encourage them to ask, how do you know if it's working? Like, oh, how does the therapist question, know? That's yeah. <laughs> super smart, super smart. Yeah, absolutely. And just finally, in terms of disclosures, is there any way that you can give people peace of mind in terms of what they are telling um, their counselor is protected between the client and the professional? Right. So again, I do think there is some variability here about how much is written down in notes. So you want to talk with your therapist or counselor about that if that is a concern to you. And I would say it probably should be a concern to you, even if you don't have like, you know, top secret information, but talk to your counselor about that piece. But legally, anything that is said to me as a licensed clinical psychologist, and this would be the case for any licensed um, mental health provider, again, another reason to see somebody who's licensed, is that I legally cannot share that information with anybody except under certain circumstances. Those circumstances are things like um, if there's a medical emergency, if there's uh, abuse of a child, if I'm coordinating care uh, with another one of your providers, I do have the ability to share information. Now, for me personally, I always check with my clients before I share that information, but I do legally have that right. But that is something, it's another thing to pay attention to is in your first session with a counselor or therapist, they should be telling you exactly what they can and cannot release. They should be going over that information in informed consent so that you know for certain before you share anything. 
Jenna, it's always so good to catch up with you. And I think this will be super helpful for people who might have been struggling, that 65%. The rest of you, we don't know how you're doing it. Um, but if people do want uh, to find a, a listing that might be outside of your insurance and locally, mm -hmm. Psychology Today is also a really great resource at the back of Psychology Today. There's a wonderful listing that shows what it is that the practitioner does and how they believe and what things they're really good at working at. I found that one to be helpful when I can't run through the myriad of insurance choices anymore. Absolutely. And it will also list on Psychology Today whether somebody is in network or out of network with particular insurance panels. Psychology Today is a really great resource. Also, go to your local or state uh, psychological association and they will often have a find a psychologist search on there as well. Dr. Jenna Lejeune, thank you again. It is always so wonderful to see you. One day we will not be in our closets and we'll be sharing a good glass of bourbon again. Won't that be uh, nice? I'd love that. <laughs> All right, take good care. You too.